You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Patrick Reese, General Manager of Cocomelon. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, buddy. I'm excited we get to do this. We've known each other for quite a long time, uh, and uh, now it's awesome for me to get a chance to pick your brain and selfishly ask you a lot of questions about your background, so I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, we've, we've climbed rocks together. We've played tennis together. This we've, is true. We've had meals together. We've played uh, catchphrase together and, yeah. and all sorts of games. Look at and you, man. I guess, I, I guess now we'll officially uh, talk about life, huh? That's right. It's coming full circle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Well, let's start things off with um, your background, right? You, you're originally from the East Coast, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm curious how you made your way to LA, how you got your start in media and entertainment. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I'm from the East Coast. I grew up uh, in upstate New York, a suburb called Rye. Um, I moved to the city for college. I went to NYU for four years, uh, graduated, uh, and sort of like studied both film uh, and theater in general. Uh, and why in- film and theater? What, what attracted you to that? Because it's fun. I like storytelling. Uh, I like stories. I like escapism. I liked, uh, I watched so many, so many movies as a kid. I watched so much television. I spend way too much time in front of a screen. Uh, played so many video games, actually, which then turned out to be something that was valuable uh, yeah. later in life. Um, but yeah, so I, I you know, it was, a, it was a lot of that. Um, but yeah, it went to NYU and New York. It was court, it was kind of um, my brother went to USC, and so I was sort of trying to decide between the LA thing earlier in life or going to NYU and and getting to go to school in the city. Um, ultimately, decided to go to NYU and then graduated. And I actually graduated in two thousand eight. Uh, was going to work in indie film and all of that. Uh, like 2008 was not a great time for people <laughs> deciding that they were going to take lots of experiments on independent film, which of course is a very lucrative business for, for anyone who gets involved in it. That's right. Um, but so uh, that didn't really work out at first. Um, but I had actually uh, interned in college on, um, on a movie called Che, which was about Che Guevara. It was actually two movies. Uh, Steven Soderbergh directed, Benicio Del Toro played Che Guevara. Um, and uh, actually won the, the Palme d'Or for Best Actor that year for the performance. It's, a, it's an interesting movie. It's a good movie. I actually like the movie. Yeah. Um, but I interned on that movie. It's the first movie that I ever worked on, and I interned uh, for this producer, Laura Bickford, uh, who had worked on a bunch of different movies. She worked on Brokeback Mountain. She worked on Traffic. Uh, she worked on, um, on the Che Guevara movies. Uh, you know, and then later, so I, I ended up calling her and just being like, Laura, like, I want to be in film, I want to be in entertainment, like, what should I do? This was after graduating college. And she was like, you should get in a car and drive to LA and come work for me. And I was like, okay, that works. And I literally hung up the phone, uh, packed a bag, got on the train uh, up to uh, Rye. Uh, I had my car from high school, packed it up. Uh, drove cross country in about three, four days, did not have a place to stay. Uh, was a day out of LA when my brother called me to say, hey, I live in this house with five other dudes, um, but there's this closet off one of the living rooms that like could maybe fit a single bed. Uh, do you want to live in it? 
And I was like, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Uh, and I got there and it actually was bigger than my bedroom in New York, uh, wow. in my New York apartment. So I yeah. was thrilled and I was like, wow, California is just a better way to live. That's right. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and moved right out. And that, that was kind of my start. That was my first job was working for Laura uh, as her assistant and trying to make uh, independent films. Amazing. So here is your big LA dream, right? Your, your yeah. first step into Hollywood and you're sleeping in a Harry Potter closet, you know? Anything yeah. that begins me as you try to figure out the crazy city. Um, what was it like, uh, you know, entering into the traditional entertainment world? Um, sorry, the question was, what was it like transitioning into the? Yeah, I mean, you, just as your first job out of college, embracing this whole realm of, of traditional entertainment, right? Films, yeah. which obviously is different than what you do today, but we'll get to that. So I'm just curious. For sure, for sure. It was. Um, it was it was weird. So um, one of the parts of the story that I actually skipped um, before I called uh, before I even called Laura is my brother uh, bought me two books. Uh, my older brother, who lived in LA, uh, brought me um, Operator, uh, David Geffen's biography, and uh, uh, The Mailroom, which of course is like required reading for any Hollywood assistant. Yeah, uh, and I also read uh, Mike Ovitz's first biography, and actually, sorry, I read Hollywood Animal too, which is Joe Esterhaus's book. Joe Esterhaus was like a very famous writer in the early '90s for being like one of the first writers to get like millions of dollars, and he wrote like real cheeseball movies like Basic Instinct and Jade and Showgirls and that sort of stuff. Um, but he's actually a very talented writer. Um, but I read those four books. I must have read all four of those books like back to back in like three days, three four days. Um, and was just like, I have to go do this. This is what I want to do is go be in Hollywood. And so, uh, you know, but then starting that job, starting and working for Laura, um, you know, we didn't have an overall deal at the time. Uh, so it was just Laura and I working together. Uh, Laura had a bunch of really good projects, really strong projects, um, that she had developed over the years and she had had jobs. She's an Oscar-nominated producer. She worked, like I said, traffic guy. She listed the, the movies, some of the movies that she worked on. Um, but she had had a deal at uh, Universal, an overall Universal, and had a bunch of projects that she had developed at that time, and then previous projects that she had developed. Um, and she was a real mainstay in the independent film scene. Uh, and that's what I loved, was this idea of doing indie film. Because uh, I just like those stories. I mean, I like Hollywood blockbusters, but I like those kinds of stories, too. Sure. Um, and... Um, the first year was really a, a, a real adjustment period um, because it was, it was hard. It was hard for me as an NYU kid coming out to LA. Uh, I knew my brother, but my brother actually worked in music, not as much film. Uh, so I met a lot of music people when I initially came out here. Um, but building a network in that business, in that entertainment business, I actually was out here for a year um, we made a movie uh, called Arbitrage, uh, which was a, a Richard Gere movie uh, that uh, Nick Jarecki wrote and directed. Uh, he was a really good writer and a really good, uh, I actually really like that movie too. It's kind of like a Sidney Pollock-esque, you know, drama, whatever thing. Look it up, people, go. Um, and uh, ended up going back to New York and shooting that, and then came back to LA and it was only after coming back to LA that I actually started looking up uh, mutual friends, friends in common, like on Facebook and so on and so forth that like had moved to LA. And I started, uh, I got in contact with an old friend of mine uh, from high school, uh, went and got drinks with him. 
And he actually opened up my entire world to, oh, you're a Hollywood assistant. Hollywood assi being a Hollywood assistant is a thing. Here's all the different assistants that you should make. You know, because I didn't do the mailroom. I didn't go to any of the agencies. I didn't do any of that stuff. Sure, sure. Um, and so started on the path of meeting a bunch of people that way um, and uh, tracking boards and the whole thing back when that was a thing where you would just join, you know, boards with 50, 100, 150 people and just trade scripts all day long because development was about finding what scripts were going around and who's the hot new writer and all that. Um, and so getting into that scene, um, you know, that was wildly important for me, especially at the onset, uh, just to meet people. Uh, and, uh, you know, if not for my buddy from high school, I would not have ever met a single person in LA really. And I would not have, um, of, uh, I, yeah, it would not have worked out well for me. And actually, if not for the same kid who called me two years later, uh, I had one job between my job with Laura and, and, and Peter, but I ended up eventually ending up working as uh, Peter Chernin's assistant for two years, two and a half years. Uh, and if not for this uh, same guy, Malcolm, uh, he called me and said, this uh, job uh, is available if you want to go up and interview for it. Yeah. Um, so uh, Malcolm, you'll never watch this. You will watch this actually, because I'm going to send this to you, but you get a very specific shout out that I would not have, I would not have any career in Hollywood, let alone the fun career that I've had, if not for, uh, for that guy. So I, will always be thankful and appreciative. Uh, That's awesome. So he tips you off about this opportunity with Peter Chernin. Obviously, Peter, for those who aren't familiar, is this mm -hmm. legendary Hollywood icon, right? This um, super producer, head of the Chernin group, which, uh, I mean, I'll let you share more because you're certainly more knowledgeable than sure. I am, but he's, he's a titan, right, of the entertainment industry. Yeah, he, um, so uh, the one thing I'll say quickly is, so I did the indie film job and then I sort of was like, no one is buying our movies. And I was, you know, really befuddled because obviously we have the greatest movies of all time to sell. And so I ended up taking a step that was less creative development and more. I went to this company called Film District, which was an independent film acquisitions and distribution company. Uh, and that was one of the most fun jobs I've ever had because all you do is watch movies and just try and figure out if audiences will go watch them or not. But it also kind of reintroduced to me um, the business side of the business. Um, and the financials that go with that. And I started being like, you know, I kind of like the, the business side, the business structure of this. I kind of like understanding audience a bit more. I love marketing. I love distribution. I'll always feel that I'm a creative person or can be a creative person or have some of those instincts. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I probably hang my hat more on being a business strategy guy and like a growth person. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, uh, and you'll tell me at some point if I'm completely washed out from all of these weird sun flares that are coming in at me, right? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Exactly. In post. That's a thing that production people say. Exactly. Uh, but so, uh, you know, that kind of pushed me in that direction. And then when my friend called me and said, Peter might be hiring an assistant, is that something that you would be interested in? Um, look, to your point, so Peter, Peter's background is he actually was one of the very first early development executives at Showtime in the late 80s. Um, he got the opportunity uh, to work for um, Barry Diller at Fox in the late 80s, early 90s, as Rupert Murdoch decided he wanted to launch Fox as a channel. Peter wow. was brought on as one of the early programmers. Um, the shows Barry, of course, goes on to launch IAC, which is eminently successful. Yeah, like he was a pretty, pretty uh, successful. Rupert, Barry, and, and Peter are pretty successful people uh, on different timelines, but you know, Barry's. Uh, Anyway, I can't talk about that, but 
Um, so, but Peter had really early successes where he greenlit a show called Cop, Married with Children, X-Files, and In Living Color, all in the first two years, three years of him being at that network. And those four shows were like the top shows uh, at the time. So, you know, he came in with a real sense of the creative side. Uh, and he also went on to then, because of his success on the TV side, uh, he ended up running the film division. Uh, he was the guy that greenlit Titanic and was the one that pushed that forward when everyone thought it was a little bit crazy and a little bit too much. Uh, and of course, Titanic goes on to be uh, one of the most successful films, if not the most successful films of all time. Um, and from there, uh, continued climbing the corporate ladder at Fox and ended up uh, as the CEO of News Corp, uh, which is the parent company of all of Rupert Murdoch's empire. They own the Dodgers at one point, you know, tons of different stuff, of course, all the newspapers. Um, and he, brilliant, brilliant guy. And he actually was uh, the person that got all of the media executives together at the time. It was uh, Bob Iger and I actually forget who it was at Universal, but started Hulu, uh, identified Jason Kylar, hired, uh, hired Jason uh, to run Hulu. And, uh, you know, that was 2008, 2009. And I think he got to a point where he was just you know, there's so much interesting stuff happening in new media uh, and in digital in general. Um, why don't I go try this? Why don't I go try something new and start my own thing? And again, not to put words into his mouth. Again, Peter, if I've said anything wrong, and Peter, if you end up watching this and I've said anything wrong, I apologize. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, he, uh, he started this company, started the Churning Group. Uh, as part of it, he had a deal from Fox. He left Fox and he had a film and television overall deal at Fox. And then he also um, started uh, an investment group, uh, which was an early stage, you know, media venture capital fund, however you want to call it. Um, actually ended up hiring this guy, Jesse Jacobs, who came in as president of the Churning Group. Jesse's still there. I think Jesse is now the CEO of the Churning Group. He might be chairman of the Churning Group. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Uh, but anyway, point being, that team has been around for a very long time. Um, and at the time that I joined the team, they were looking into purchasing um, to purchasing Hulu back from uh, back from Universal, Disney, and Fox, and had partnered with AT and T uh, to make that bid and, and and go and try and purchase the asset. Uh, and it ended up not working out, um, but it was a really cool moment to join the company, like right at the tail end of that, and be like, "Whoa, we're." buying Hulu? What does that even mean to, to buy Hulu? Um, and so ultimately it didn't work out. Disney, uh, Disney Universal and Fox decided they wanted to keep the asset instead of uh, doing that. Um, but at the same time, you know, Chernin had been investing in all sorts of different things, uh, had invested in a company called Fullscreen, uh, was the first investor, initial investor, uh, Fullscreen, which was an early stage uh, MCN, multi-channel network. Uh, they were rolling up uh, YouTube partners, YouTube channels, YouTube creators, and offering the management services and media services and all that. James has maybe worked uh, in the MCN business a little bit, so maybe understands MCN as well. I imagine anyone listening to James' podcast probably knows what an MCN is, but probably for, for anyone who doesn't. Um, but so, of course, uh, early stage investors in, 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 um, in full screen, they were also uh, investors in Base 79, in um, uh, Net, which was an Indonesian cable channel, was oh, another yeah. that we were invested in, oh, wow. and Net, and um, and a bunch of other just digital companies. Uh, I'm trying to think at the time. SoundCloud, we had looked, I don't think we actually did invest in SoundCloud. Um, 
But anyway, point being, we were looking at that sort of stuff and Hulu actually fell through. And uh, at the time, another brilliant guy who worked at, uh, at Churn and one of the smartest guys I've ever met and, and worked with uh, this guy, Jason Bergsman, had uh, also did. found a different subscription video business that he was uh, you know, uh, shepherding through the deal process. And that was Crunchyroll. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I joined the company three months, four months. The three big things that happened were uh, we bought uh, Crunchyroll or a controlling stake in Crunchyroll. We did another investment round in full screen uh, because Maker actually sold to Disney at that time for $500 million plus $400 million earnout. So full screen did a second round raise. And as part of that raise, we actually bought Rooster Teeth which was then under full screen. Um, and then the third thing was IMG was put on the market and put for sale. And so then we were very much uh, in the game. Uh, it was ICM and Chernin and uh, WME. And actually CAA was looking a little bit too, but WME, ICM and, and Chernin were really the ones looking at this. And so it was all of a sudden like, my goodness, we have uh, the top uh, comedy television show on the air in New Girl. We had one of the best performing Hollywood movie blockbusters in uh, the Planet of the Apes franchise, which had been reimagined under Peter uh, and, um, and Dylan and Jenna Topping. And um, we had full screen, which was an MCN, which was the bell of the ball, like the best asset to have at that time. And the largest at the time, Rooster Teeth, which was one of the most um, deep fandom uh, media companies that had ever existed uh, and was born and, and raised on YouTube. Uh, you know, early stage like Machinima Company way back in the day and then something that outgrew that. And of course, Rooster Teeth has gone on to do great things. And then Crunchyroll, which kind of was the first subscription service for the thesis of what all media has come become today, which is like super fandoms and affinity brands and like finding niche content and like making sure that you're building audiences out of that. Um, and then- all really nailed it first. They saw, hey, there's an opportunity in anime to you know, activate that super fandom and get people to open their wallets and pay to watch the content they love. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so that was like a, it was an amazing time. And then the other thing was IMG, like looking at IMG as like a sports rights holder, uh, modeling agency, just different things that they were doing as well. Like it really was this year of here is every side of media, but beyond every side of media, here's every subset of every side of media. Cause you think you understand a regular management company, here's IMG, but also compare that to how Fullscreen is doing management and those kinds of services. Like there are through lines here and all of this, but like, what does all of this mean? What is the connective tissue? Like, how do you think about these businesses? Which is gonna evolve in one way, which one has to get more traditional and go the other way. Um, so it really was like an amazing eye-opening time. Uh, and I listed some of the people, uh, you know, Peter Chernin himself, brilliant guy. Uh, Jesse Jacobs, brilliant guy. Uh, Jason Bergsman, amazing guy. Uh, is um, running the Russo's Brothers company now. Uh, he's at Agbo, uh, where he's the CEO. Um, we had another guy, Scott Bromley, really smart guy. Uh, it's Steve Kuzno, who's still working in the in the Chernin side. Um, some really, really, really smart, amazing people who have uh, continued to do amazing stuff. Um, Sarah Harden came on early on, who actually later on, uh, went on to be the CEO of Otter Media. Um, and so anyway, like all this stuff happens, uh, and I'm kind of monologuing a bit. This really isn't an interview as much as it's Patrick just talks about <laughs> Well, I'm stuff. interested. I, I, yeah. you know, I do have a few questions. I'm, I'm interested, number one, in, you know, this period of time at the Churning Group, 
And mm -hmm. it's like it, the hallmark was M&A, right? So was that where you were spending the majority of your time? Of course, Peter has this traditional production. You mentioned New Girl. He has all these other programs on the air, yeah. which are traditional TV shows that are doing very well. And he's, he's got a great brand reputation around that. But it seems like on the digital side, the focus was really finding these incredible companies, bringing them into the fold. And I don't know, how, how involved was the churning group? Were they trying to find synergies between these assets or um, you know, provide additional resources to help them grow? Or was it pretty hands-off, like, hey, here's the capital, keep doing what you're doing? What was that like? Yeah, 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 for sure. Look, it's hard. I don't want to mischaracterize anything because I, I do want to say this. I, I, I worked for Peter. I was like his chief of staff and, and uh, helped him be organized, ran his calendar, answered his phone, like the classic Hollywood assistant style thing. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not as if I was in the day-to-day -day rooms of these investment deals and how they were actually run and operated. Um, later on, I would become a little bit more closer to how we were dealing with certain specific assets as I started deciding, well, what is my next step at the group going to be? But in terms of like the investment philosophy, and a lot of this has changed over the years too, um, you know, we were involved in the sense that, you know, Jesse's just a super smart guy and Jason's a super smart guy and we wanted to help um, these teams build out their companies, right? And Crunchyroll, as a for instance, we won Crunchyroll not with the biggest checkbook. It was really with the, here's the money that you need to succeed, and here's what the strategy looks like, and here's, we're going to help you get from A to B. And they did that at such an accelerated pace. Like, I don't, I don't know that people... So the roll-up strategy portion of it, you know, shortly thereafter, uh, or it feels like shortly thereafter now, just because I'm so old and everything that happened in the past feels like it happened so quickly. Um, but we, because Hulu fell through, AT&T was still in a position where they knew that they needed a video solution, a content solution for themselves uh, as a platform. Of course, they've gone on to buy Warner Media uh, or Warner Brothers at the time, and now it's Warner Media. Uh, there, of course, HBO Max and all that. But this was the early stages of this. this we're talking seven, eight years ago now. Um, they needed a video solution. And, and it was even before DirecTV, for that matter, actually, as I'm thinking about the, the timeline. Um, and Peter and Jesse, to their credit, uh, very quickly identified with, uh, with, with Randall and John and, and all the executive team that were working at AT&T at the time. Um, we had... Uh, an interesting way to help solve some of the questions that, that AT&T had from a digital video perspective. And the way that we were answering those questions were, there should be some kind of affinity subscription service, okay, Crunchyroll, plus Rooster Teeth, by the way, Rooster Teeth had a subscription fan club. There should be some sort of uh, content studio and production arm and production element that knows how to make hits. And that was Rooster Teeth. Rooster Teeth had made Red versus Blue, which still is going on. And it was in the second season of Making Ruby, which is one of the most successful, if not the most successful American-made animes that's, that's ever been commissioned. Uh, and we had a services business, a media scale business in full screen that was providing new creators, um, you know, a partner sales, branded content, all of that, and also identifying early stage talent and helping them grow and helping them, uh, and helping nurture them. Uh, you know, AT&T saw that, or we messaged that to AT&T, or the churning guys messaged that to, to AT&T, and, um, you know, that led to more of this roll-up strategy, I think, uh, which was we created a joint venture called Otter Media, where AT&T put in $500 million, 
and um, uh, we contributed full screen, uh, which owned Rooster Teeth and uh, Crunchyroll. And then also with the idea of we were going to launch a subscription video on demand service at full screen that was going to be the MTV of that generation. That was a little bit all the rage at that time. Verizon tried it with Go90. They were just trying to figure out, uh, you know, uh, Viacom has actually uh, had a lawsuit with YouTube and didn't put any of its uh, MTV style content on YouTube because they were saying it was getting stolen. So there was this giant gap of who is going to be MTV if YouTube wins the distribution war. Um, so it was really just a, a fascinating time um, to help and, and grow that. And I think once we made 18, uh, once, once Otter Media was created, at that point, Otter was a holding company and a portfolio company and, and a services company, but was a little bit more definitely in the weeds day to day with, um, with launching a new subscription service at full screen and, and helping guide uh, the, the almost the channels portfolio, which is like the Rooster Teeth subscription and the, and the Crunchyroll subscription. And of course, those businesses in general. And that took different forms. Um, but it's my very long roundabout way of saying how operational were they at that time? How operational were they not? How much were they passive investors? Not, I, I would say, I don't think that they were ever passive investors. Uh, I would probably say the same thing about them now, that they're not really passive investors. But that's not to say that they come in and take control of a company either. Like they work with companies and try and provide value. Um, and they have an unbelievable track record for yeah. what's worth. I, I can't think of a, a better company that's uh, helped shepherd some properties into some amazing exits and just amazing new businesses over the years. Uh, Headspace is a company that they've had a strong hand in, which is great. Food 52 that they just uh, invested in very recently, but that looks to be a strong business. And then of course, Barstool Sports. I mean, unbelievable what, what Barstool was and what it's become and, and continuing to grow. Um, they've, done, they've done amazing stuff. And, and that's yeah. not even mentioning the sale of Otter Media to, to AT&T eventually. So uh, really great yeah. play. A lot of incredible success stories. And actually one of the questions I was wanting to ask you was about, were there any notable misses during that period? I think the one that comes to mind or perhaps was the most public is talking about full screens attempt to launch an SWOT app, right? Lowercase full screen, right? Versus, uh, you know, capital uh, full screen, which was the, the media company, uh, which people compared to Go90, which, you know, Verizon's mm -hmm. effort unsuccessful, feels a lot, looks a lot like Quibi, which now is, uh, you know, getting wound down uh, with kind of a December 1st uh, target period. What are the lessons, what are the takeaways from, from that experience? Yeah, sure. Um, so look, the full screen S1 didn't work, uh, ultimately, um, or maybe another way to put it is it just couldn't quite find the right market fit and the amount of money that would have been required to really push that forward in an environment where AT&T is the key investor and sort of looked at DirecTV, but then also was clearly in talks to acquire Warner, whether we were aware, whether the higher ups were aware or not. Um, once they made that decision, launching a channel in that way, uh, maybe stopped making sense a little bit to continue funding it. Um, I do think that there's a world where we had some pretty strong shows on the full screen SVOD and we actually learned a lot of stuff. We funded one of um, uh, Shane Dawson's first podcast which turned out to be like podcasting in that realm. Like now it's silly. Like, of course I have a podcast, I'm on a podcast, right? But at that time, 
it really wasn't a normal way to program content. And that turned out to be a wildly innovative way to, to grab and drive subscribers and a really strong economical way to do that. Um, so that was an unbelievable learning. Uh, we actually took, uh, Andrea Russett had made a movie called uh, Sick House. I wanna say it's called Sick House, maybe it was called something else, but it was a Snapchat movie. So it was first windowed on Snapchat, disappearing like sort of like a Blair Witch Project style thing. But we took that movie and put it onto the platform. And because of like the first window viewership on Snap, but it didn't exist anywhere else, like it actually had a lot of buzz around it. And that was like a big subscriber getter. Like there was a lot of interesting content strategies that went into how we were programming the SVOD. Um, and look, it didn't ultimately, yeah, it, it couldn't get to the scale that it needed to. I think also, the technology portion of it is just so expensive. And at some point you're competing with uh, like how much content can you make? How do you make interesting content? How do you make loud enough content? How do you make something that really resonates? How do you differentiate between YouTube and an SVOD and Netflix and you know Disney Plus and Peacock and all of these things, right? Like does Quibi, does Quibi differentiate itself from TikTok, but like how, and like what's a better experience, but what's a better long-term experience? Uh, you know, should Quibi have been socially shareable at first instead of not being socially shareable? Like, probably, but would that have made the difference? I mean, who can say? Who will ever know? But, uh, you know, as a baseline, that probably could have been something that helped. Flip side is on the full screen SVOD, we tried to build a social interactive environment that was within the walled garden of full screen as well, right? Like, we didn't want social audience. We didn't want social to be where our audience was happening. We wanted it to be on the app. And it was different times. And, you know, so it's, there's so many moving targets with it, um, but it was a really, really interesting time. And I think also being able to compare that to Rooster Teeth's growth at that time and Crunchyroll's growth for that matter, um, it actually allowed us, like if you look at the subscription video, uh, excuse me, the subscription video um, strategy of Otter Media, not as full screen, let's invest in full screen, but as Rooster Teeth plus Crunchyroll plus um, uh, full screen SVOD, plus we did, we launched Korean drama. We uh, launched um, Creative Bug, which was a DIY, um, uh, like arts and crafts style subscription video service. We tried a lot of things. We tried a lot of different affinity products and uh, we learned a ton. And again, like on a balance, if you're gonna launch, and James, again, you've worked with MCNs long enough. If I was gonna tell you, I'm gonna launch 10 channels on YouTube, and three of them are going to be wildly successful, or two, three of them are going to be wildly successful, I think we'd all be like, wow, that's a fantastic outcome. It's really hard launching channels. Mm -hmm. uh, adds with that it's in a walled garden. Uh, look, I, 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 think, uh, I think there were some really strong successes there. Uh, and of course, a lot that we learned in the, in the process of shutting some other ones down. Nice. So eventually, you go in-house at full screen, right? So your time at the churning group uh, finishes up, and then, and then you move on to your full screen chapter. What appealed to you about, uh, about that and what was your role within Fullscreen when you came into the business? Yeah, I actually, so I had dinner with a guy named Bo Bryant who later became my boss uh, and the, the lead of the creator division. I had dinner with him when he first started and we kind of had like a fun dinner conversation where Bo uh, used to work for Ari Emanuel, I was working for Peter and it was kind of one of those, isn't it so funny when Mogul Man does this or when Mogul Man does that? <laughs> and, but you know, that sort of silly stuff, but also just like the macro world of yep. things. 
And so when it came time uh, for me to, you know, I, I completed my two years with Peter, always committed to doing two years. Uh, when I completed that time, um, full screen always seemed really interesting to me. I didn't really know exactly what it was that I wanted to do at full screen. I would say openly, I didn't necessarily want to go do subscription video on demand within full screen because that felt like either product or content development specifically for that service. But I loved YouTube and I loved social and I loved audience. I love audience, content distribution, all that. Like I say, the, the same reasons I went to film district for, as a film in, independent film buyer and distributor are the same reasons ultimately when I talked to Bo and I said, Bo, like I'm thinking about what to do next. And Bo, you know, very plainly said to me like, yeah, I, I don't really have a job for you, a thing for you, but kind of need someone to come in and like think about stuff. So <laughs> why don't you just come work for me and think about stuff? And I was like, cool, what does that mean? He's like, I, I don't know, you got to think about it and decide what that means. And I was like, yeah, okay, that works for me. Um, and so yeah, I ended up running the invitation. Yeah, no, it was great. It was, it was really fantastic. And I, and I so much appreciate um, him, him making that offer to me because very quickly going to full screen, um, one of the very first things that I started working on um, was gaming. Uh, we represented a, 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 there's a, there's a manager who used to work at full screen. Uh, his name is Michael Gordon, who is the savant of the YouTube uh, uh, space. Uh, Anyone probably in the YouTube world at least knows Michael Gordon or is, or is connected to someone that knows Michael Gordon. Um, and very early on, he was, he was very, very good at identifying uh, talent that was going to be huge uh, on YouTube. He just, he just got the space. And one of his early uh, clients was uh, the FaZe Clan before they were the big FaZe Clan. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got the opportunity and he was gracious enough to allow me to uh, help him with the account. Again, more from the business strategy side, uh, more that than um, like the day-to-day -day talent management. But it really opened my eyes to uh, how gaming had changed since I was a kid and just playing video games all the time uh, and how important gaming video content was, but also how the gaming world in general, like even the platforms themselves, the consoles themselves, the, the um, games themselves, how much that was changing. Um, and I actually, like when I think back again on my, my first two years of full screen, my first two years of full screen, the big chunk things that we did were um, launched FaZe Clan and helped support them on the business side to actually like build them out as like a portfolio brand and like help uh, build that network out and run that. And, and that was amazing. And they still today are one of the biggest gaming brands, uh, gaming creator collectives uh, in the space. Uh, second was we created a Twitter distribution business, which, uh, I thought it was a really interesting and innovative way to approach Twitter. Uh, we all felt it was, and we actually had probably the most watched uh, Twitter account for about four months. Um, half of it was full screen subscription video on demand content that we were distributing on Twitter. The other half of it was creator content that we were helping distribute. Um, but eventually, uh, for reasons, uh, ended up not continuing to work on that. And then Twitter kind of changed its and pivoted from the way that it was doing its own video strategy. Um, and then also built um, a Facebook distribution business uh, and kind of, you know, inherited a program there. And we were able to take that program and grow it, I think, five or six X in the first uh, six months of working on that and then continuing to work with Facebook to grow it. Um, so really, like, that's what full screen was for me initially was what an unbelievable opportunity to learn gaming firsthand, Twitter distribution, Facebook distribution. And then playing around with new business stuff of like, you know, what is Snapchat? Is it going to matter to our creators? Is it not? 
uh, and getting to know you know some of uh, the best managers uh, in the space. Uh, really, really smart people. Uh, uh, Mazad Babian, who's still there, uh, I, I would put uh, up there with uh, not just digital managers, I'd say he's probably one of the best managers uh, in the space overall. Uh, and she runs talent now for uh, for the management side of full screen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just great people. Parker, who you know, is a brilliant guy. Ryan Bosack was there at that time. He's going on to start Superbam. Uh, probably the smartest guy in the in the um, uh, content claiming space, CID space, uh, copyright ID, I, rights rights management. There we go. I figured it out eventually. <laughs> a lot of the rights management space. Yeah, um, and. Uh, and, you know, working with Bo, too, uh, super, super smart guy, really like a, a big picture thinker, a really smart guy, uh, really just got it. And, and a really um, the best kind of boss for me anyway, who is just sort of a it turned out it, it can be frustrating and it can be wonderful uh, at times to have the go figure it out conversation with your boss, which yeah. is the vote of confidence that you will go figure it out, hopefully. Otherwise, they wouldn't ask you to. But also the frustration of but can't you just tell me like, it's hard to figure things out. Um, yeah. But well, he was always great for, for hiring someone like you and then building the space in the organization to say, we need to think about new initiatives. What are we not doing today? Yeah. How do we go chase that down? I don't have the answers, but I need someone who can focus on that. And that's how you came up with, you know, the multi-platform strategy back when, you know, full screen started as a YouTube network, but needed to figure out how do we play on YouTube? How do we play on Facebook? What's our Snapchat strategy? Right. So that's a big part of it. And, you know, to, to be fair, I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with Bo where a whiteboard wasn't involved, but it's like, <laughs> that's the best part about it is like Bo thinks so deeply about the media space and about the just the strategic elements, the systemic kind of layers of the space, where it's going five, 10 years from now. And I'm like you, I love putting those, those pieces together. And these jobs for us wouldn't have existed 10 or 20 years ago, right? Like had you or I both come out to LA to make our fortune, we both would have ended up probably as Hollywood agents and we probably would have been yeah. just fine. But think about how much more interesting and robust the digital, uh, you know, digital world is now as a result. Are you going to go back and be a Hollywood agent now, James? <laughs> Gosh, I hope not. Nothing against Hollywood agents. I know a number of them and they're, they're terrific, but um, you know, it's, it's just like there are other paths to now pursue if you're a business person in, in, in entertainment that really likes to think about the strategic pieces, loves having, you know, like, like you and me both have a lot of relationships and love to network or put people in touch and, you know, see what happens as a result. And um, yeah, I mean, I think either of us could have found success in that world, but it's, it's just as rewarding getting to kind of yeah. create new paradigms of where media and entertainment is going in the future. Yeah, it was so, so lucky to have had that experience and yeah, exactly what you're saying too, like at the new, the start of these kind of this business too, and this whole paradigm shift. Um, And the one other person I'd say, I mean, there are a bunch of other people for that period too, but George, uh, George Trampolis, obviously who founded the company uh, at that time was, uh, uh, was of course really involved with it still. and just to have that as a resource, George, who was a guy who founded the YouTube Partnerships program and then went to, to start full screen. Uh, it, it just, it, it was a, it's an amazing place. I think you look around the digital industry and you see a lot of full screen alumni in, in tons of different jobs. And I think we, uh, we all think of that place fondly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm of course more recently removed because I left four months ago, but. Uh, well, let's talk about that. How did Coco Melon enter the picture? Yeah, so um, look, we had, we had a lot of success uh, growing the distribution arm of, um, 
of full screen uh, and helping grow out Facebook programs, Snapchat programs, so on and so forth. Um, we also experimented with uh, launching certain owned and operated brands, trying to do that on different platforms and all of that. Had some successes, had some not successes, um, but learned a lot along the way. And as we kept growing, we felt like from a creator standpoint, the thing that's going to matter for creators is they really got to get better at understanding their own audiences and why they should be doing certain things to reach their audiences and appeal to their audiences. And um, part of like a transition that we made was uh, I, st I stepped back into the role of, because I had the experience with the FaZe Clan, um, I stepped back into the role of working with our gaming team and, and ran uh, gaming on the creator side. And we actually, we kind of broke it up by audience segments. And we, I would say that we changed this stuff around a bit. And sometimes you talk about it differently inside or outside, but um, ultimately we tried to think of it as um, media companies are buying audience based on what reach they want to have, like who they want to hit. Like I want 18 to 15 year old, 18 to 25 year old males to buy my product. I want to buy that audience. And since media was such an important part of our sales package and also how we were pitching branded content and all the different partnerships, um, and also how you would sell a product if you yourself launched a product, you'd have to think about the product that reaches and resonates with your audience. Um, we, uh, we started thinking about things as male audience and female audience. Um, and I, for a time, ran male audience. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, um, ran the gaming side of things and worked with some great people. Uh, uh, Ninja, through his manager, Brandon Freytag, who's a good guy, um, and, and that whole company. And they've done amazing things. Loaded has just grown so fast. That's right. Um, tried to think about different ways to work on Twitch. Uh, tried to think through different technologies that we're building in that space. James, you and I actually have had many conversations, or had many conversations at that period of our lives about sort of how how all those platforms were going to grow. Um, and, you know, in working with male audience, uh, there ended up being, you know, Cocomelon kind of fell in between the cracks of what is male audience, what is female audience, because Cocomelon is all the audience in the world. Uh, at the time, it was not as big. Uh, I think I, I took on that division. Cocomelon was a passive, um, a passive client at full screen. He was actually signed to a hundred zero contract, which basically means we don't take any revenue from it. And it was a, it was a vestige from the old MCM days where the top line revenue mattered, even if you weren't making any, any, um, actual profit on the channel, uh, which was a silly thing. Um, but it had existed and, uh, was, it has actually turned out to be, I think a bit damaging to the ecosystem overall. And it's a shame. Uh, it actually did serve a purpose at the time, so it was important to, to jumpstart some stuff, but it's, it's a shame uh, because there are some vestiges of that that have been problematic for the industry. But anyway, uh, that's for another podcast. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Cocomelon was a client, and I, I was just curious, right? I, I just wanted to, to, to meet, uh, to meet uh, the founder, um, who's a very private guy, so I'm just going to call him the, the, the founder. Um, and so, uh, ended up reaching out to him, uh, and we had a meeting and, uh, got to talking to him about his goals. And I, I had taken over male lifestyle, but also sort of, um, optimization strategy for creators. Uh, there's a guy at John Hol uh, named John Holdridge at, uh, at full screen who had built this division called video labs. And it was kind of brand services of we'll run your channels for you. And we'll tell you what levers to push and pull and all of that and how to program your channels. 
And we were sort of trying to figure out, okay, there are definitely elements of that offering that we should also give to creators. There, there should be, they should be doing it too. Um, and so I went down to kind of, you know, measure our pitch, like figure out like you're the biggest channel on YouTube or one of at the time. Um, how are you going to react to this pitch? Like I'm super curious. And he reacted about how I'd expect, which is to say, um, I have been doing this for 15 years. My channel is older than YouTube being bought by Google. My channel predates older than your company, by the way. Older than full screen at this point. Older, older than full screen by by a while. Older than Rooster Teeth. Really, like an, a guy that had been doing it for a very, very long time. Coco Melon itself, as a brand, was launched in August of 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and the 3D characters were actually started to be introduced around March of 2017, but really like hit their stride in, in October of 2017. But the channel had been around for a long time and doing like 50, 100 million views uh, per month, actually closer to 30, 50 million views per month. So I can only um, imagine you come to him and say, hey, we're gonna help you grow your channel. And he, he yeah. looks back at you, he's like, what are you going to tell me that I don't already know? Yeah, like he, he, um, he is such a, a, a polite guy and, and the, the sweetest person um, in the world. Um, and so when he very sweetly laughed in our collective faces to say, do you really think that I need optimization tips and tricks? Uh, and look, the, the reality is uh, there are different things. There are things that he could have done with that channel. Um, that, by the way, I give Moonbug a lot of credit for since, uh, you know, the acquisition happened and obviously Moonbug's running the channel now. Moonbug has done a fantastic job of taking some of the, the stuff that the channel was doing and changing some of that hardcore underlying stuff. And that is run by another guy, uh, John Benoit, who also is a genius in the space and really like a, a great, great guy. Uh, and as someone that has worked in the space for four or five years and quote unquote run uh, strategy divisions in the space, uh, to meet a guy that you just sort of like fawn over because he's just so good at this space. Uh, that uh, one of the many, many exciting reasons why uh, I made the jump that I did uh, to, to go uh, Moonbug full time, just the, the, the opportunity to work with, uh, with people like that. Um, but, uh, you know, that's not what he was interested. That's not what Jay, uh, that the founder was interested in. Um, and so, um, you know, what we did start to talk about though was, okay, you don't want optimization tips and tricks, but let's be honest here, you're a YouTube brand. All you are is on YouTube. You don't do anything else. Um, what do you want to be? What do you want to build? You're making three minute content on YouTube. That's it. One, one video a week. Mm -hmm. And what I started- the time was contrary to everything that everyone else was doing, right? The, the philosophy was yeah. in order to favor the algorithm, you need to churn out content. You need to have at least a video a day. And they said, you know what? No we're gonna focus on quality over quantity, and we're gonna pump out one really premium high animation piece a week, and it got huge viewership, right? It got huge viewership, and I do, what I will say that they did, they were very smart about was uh, the compilations, uh, and being able to balance, because YouTube does, watch time is, is the beast of YouTube. And so being able to have the short video, and then having the compilations, which ended up being 25 to 30 minutes, and being able to have people watch those every week uh, and create that kind of a library effect, wildly important. But, but yeah, Cocomelon was very much about premium, premium quality and making the best possible thing and doing it with a, a, a real skeleton crew of brilliant creators, uh, most of them still with us today. Um, but, you know, based out of Irvine and doing it as this kind of homegrown business. Um, 
but you know, spoke to, spoke to them a bit and was like, how do we build this? How do we build this out? And uh, kind of put together the business plan uh, for Cocomelon and said, look, there are only so many different ways to, to monetize, right? There's uh, brand sales and endorsements, probably not something that's gonna necessarily work in the kids' space. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. There's subscription fan clubs. Again, like, are we really gonna do that? Maybe, maybe not. Live touring, that's an important one, but is that the one that you wanna focus on to start? Probably not. Uh, and then it's, of course, consumer products and merchandising. Yep. Uh, and then original content, either making longer form original content and selling originals to different platforms, we're doing content distribution uh, of taking the library of content and figuring out ways to get it onto different platforms. And so um, kind of talked him through that and we very quickly came up with a strategy for how we were gonna do this. We were gonna identify our, our favorite distribution partners and we were gonna partner with our best distribution partners. We were gonna enter the licensing business but not in some kind of slow way. We were gonna identify great partners uh, and work with them um, and I actually, uh, I, I was lucky enough to uh, be introduced to a woman named Samantha Freeman, who used to run a company called Out of the Blue, um, and uh, which is Blue's Clues and a bunch of other things. She worked in Mattel for a long time. Uh, no, she didn't work in, yes, she did work in Mattel. Uh, and Nickelodeon for a longer time. Um, and actually joined, uh, she works for a company called Trout now. Um, but, you know, the first six months of us working at Cocomelon, it was, the founder and I kind of being like, here's how we're going to start to position ourselves. We're going to start to build these assets. We're going to do this. We're going to start to filter and funnel all this stuff. Um, we brought on our licensing agent, Sam. Um, we uh, started having conversations with, uh, with Jazzwares, uh, who is now our toy partner. We had a conversation with a bunch of different uh, toy partners. But to be clear, like this was a year, year and a half ago, uh, pre-COVID and pre-Ryan's world even becoming the phenomenon that it was, right? The idea that a YouTube property was big enough and able to, to sell products was not a given. Uh, you know, we felt pretty confident that we were going to be able to do it. Um, but we also started thinking more about the content strategy too, right? Like and what messages we wanted to convey and how we wanted to build that out. And um, look, when, when I started working with Cocomelon, we were the biggest channel at the time, and we were never gonna get bigger because we were doing a staggering 1 billion to 1.2 billion views per month. Um, so there was no way we were ever gonna grow bigger than that. We had to strike where the iron was hot because otherwise we're gonna lose this audience and we'll you know, rue the day that we missed our opportunity. Um, and you sort of flash forward to today, um, we average around three and a half to four billion views per month at this point. Wow. Um, so we've quadrupled since, you know, I, I started working with, not saying that I, I was the one that drew up the viewership for them, just saying since the, the, in the two years that, that we've, uh, that I started working with Cocomelon, um, we're probably the fastest selling toy property of, of the season. Uh, it's wildly successful. And I think we just spent, um, something like 12 or 13 consecutive weeks in Netflix's top 10. Uh, from a distribution we deal we did of, of three compilation videos uh, that launched in I should actually know this cold June 1st is when we launched on Netflix of this year uh, so that was like a legacy deal that we did, that we did uh, prior to the acquisition wow. uh, but that's a deal that you know we've outperformed I think we outperformed Avatar was something that I just uh, recently read, but that may or may not be true. Point is less that, it's not about comparing it to other uh, anime or, 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 or animation or any of that stuff. Point is more, it's turned out to be such a strong brand and such a, a, a brand that resonates with people 
um, and building it and, and getting into all these different consumer products areas and all that, it turned out to be like a, a, a great thing that uh, I'm glad that Cocomelon was open to it. And obviously we've positioned ourselves in a way that, um, you know, we're, we're going to really be able to, to grow this thing even more over the, the next few years. Yeah, that's amazing. And how did the Moonbug acquisition come about? Yeah, so um, back when we were trying to, and this goes back a while, um, back when we were trying to sell uh, uh, licensing partners on why they should even work with us, uh, and that was somehow an uphill battle, but it somehow was, um, of course, uh, the Moonbug team knew right from the start that Cocomelon was a, was a unique property and something that they very much wanted to work with. Uh, and uh, Renee, uh, who's the CEO, and, and John Robson, who's the COO, um, started a courtship of sorts. It was a long courtship uh, with, uh, with the founder. Uh, and, um, you know, they had talks for a bit. Uh, and then I think, you know, the Cocomelon team is just very much like, you know, we kind of want to try and grow this. We kind of want to build this business out. And, and, and I had started working with them and, and we were just going to try and build out a couple more areas of the business. Uh, I think before um, the founder was ready to, to, to hang up his spurs, as it, as it were. Um, and so we built it out a bit, uh, a bit more. Um, but to, to Renee and, and John's credit and, of course, Andy Yeatman and, uh, and Alfie and the, on the M&A team, uh, they were uh, very, very persuasive and very dogged about the idea that uh, Cocomelon truly belongs uh, in the Moonbug portfolio uh, because, yes, it's a great brand, uh, but also because of all the things that Moonbug could do to help and support it and really supercharge the growth, all these different areas that we had identified. And the reality is it was me doing it alone uh, for, uh, for Cocomelon as that BD guy uh, and I think we did an okay job and we prioritized certain things, but look, at the end of the day, this is a massive, massive brand and to really grow it and really be able to take advantage of all the things we could take advantage of, um, having more resources would help. Uh, and, and John and Renee and, and Andy, Alfie, like they all recognize that. Um, and, um, you know, uh, keep pushing, I kept pushing for the conversations. Uh, and then of course we got into uh, February of this year uh, and we had come back from uh, Kid Screen, uh, and the conversations really started to heat up at that point. But then also COVID happened, and COVID, of course, shifted the paradigm of a lot of different things, um, but not Moonbug's general outlook on the on the kids space. Of course, like the kids space continues to grow, and and then they've they've made amazing uh, investments in the area, and I think we're Moonbug's really well poised and positioned to take advantage of how kids content has evolved over the years. Um, but ended up, you know, making that deal and, uh, uh, they came to terms and I think, uh, it closed on in July, uh, the exact date in July. Um, and of course I've been working with, uh, with Cocomelon for long enough and they were gracious enough to say, Hey Patrick, we appreciate and respect the work that you do, um, for Cocomelon. Would you like to come and work on Cocomelon full time? Uh, and I, yeah, let's do it. Uh, it's an amazing brand. This will be a fun ride. And it has been a fun ride so far with Very many, cool. many loops to go. Sure. Great to hear. And it's interesting how, you know, you identified the opportunity for this asset within full screen that 
you know, like you said, was a past partner, had no real support prior to it. And there wasn't really a, a service org built to support it because it was, you know, there's the male demographic, there's the female demographic, mm -hmm. but it sounds like there was no kids focus. There was no, you know, resources or strategy behind kids content. There was, there was no kids focus. We did not have a portfolio of kids content at full screen. What we did have was we had family channels and we had channels that appealed to this audience, but this audience is very, very specific. It's a one to three, one to four year old audience. Um, we were able at full screen to do a lot for Cocomelon just purely on the services side, right? Like I, I came in and did like business development and strategy stuff, but we were able to build a really lucrative content ID business. We were able to build a, a somewhat significant media business uh, in partnership with AT&T and Warner Media. Um, we were doing a lot on the full screen side to, to support and help grow Cocomelon. Um, it's just, it got to a point where, you know, the founder, I think, got to a point where he maybe didn't want to do it on a day-to-day -day basis anymore. And the reality is Moonbug has a lot of similar services to what uh, full screen does, but instead of doing them uh, externally through an agency, which brand different companies have to do things in different ways, but Moonbugs, their the core philosophy is being able to program and support uh, YouTube channels and, and program content on YouTube. There's just overlap there. So um, it didn't make sense to do a, continu a continuation partnership between Moonbug and Fullscreen, but Fullscreen did a fantastic job uh, over, the, over the two years that we really got closer and, and started working with them. Um, and I, I do think Fullscreen does really great work for, uh, for a lot of a lot of their partners and and, and have been a strong company. Um, yeah. That said, I, I, Moonbug's got a fantastic team. Moonbug is great. Uh, love Moonbug, and this is nothing saying nothing about full screen, but I, I I love the Moonbug team. These guys are John Benoit, man, just a just a smart smart guy. Uh, the rest of them, it's really it's really a it's really a great team, um, and and I'm so. I'm so fortunate to be in a position to, to work with them and, and with the Cocomelon team. Terrific. Well, I know we're just about out of time, so I want to kind of close out with some quick rapid fire questions. Sure. One yeah. that I'm trying to get your take on is, you know, earlier this week, Snapchat hit a $50 billion valuation, which is a big yeah. milestone for them, uh, you know, after uh, a big Q3 performance. And we are now taking steps in the product to seem like they're going to be more of a, a platform for creators again. What is your take on the future of Snap? Uh, I, look, I think Snap is a, a phenomenal product and, and really serves an interesting need. They've really uh, established themselves as an interesting messaging platform. People clearly love the product and go back to it. Um, I wish I was young enough that my friends used Snap. I think Snap is an interesting thing because unless you adopt it, early on when you're messaging people all the time, like it's a hard habit to take up in life because you need other people to buy into it and do it. Um, but I, I think that they've done an amazing job uh, and uh, their partnerships with, with TikTok have been super interesting uh, and they've been really laser focused on what they want to provide. Um, so I, I have, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to watch how Snap evolves. It's not really a media as in video consumption platform. I guess it's a messaging consumption platform, which has video in it. Um, so I don't know how it's going to evolve. I will, I will also plainly admit this, James. Um, if you asked me six months ago, when I'm still working with creators in the full screen network and teen-centric audience and all of that, I probably have a more comprehensive answer because I'm paying more attention to it. Uh, 
working with a brand that is for one to three-year-olds, one to four-year-olds, they don't use Snapchat as much, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has uh, is less of a less of a day to day focus for me. Yeah. What is your take on the recent uh, DOJ lawsuit against Google for antitrust? I don't know that I have a take on it. Um, I think Google's an amazing platform. I think YouTube's an amazing platform, and they've built something that's unbelievable. And the functionality of this cool uh, Facebook is an amazing platform, and Instagram are. Uh, I would have said two years ago, it's impossible to build a competitor to either of them. And TikTok is doing an unbelievable, amazing job getting young audience. And we just talked about how Snapchat is continuing to grow. So uh, I, all I know is that we don't know anything at all. Uh, and these uh, companies continue to evolve. Um, and it'll be interesting to see that I, the, the lawsuit, I, I actually don't even know what they're specifically saying within the lawsuit. No, is, sure, so, sure. So, no, no worries. It, yeah. it, there's a lot to it, right? But I think um, from what I've read and, and uh, observed so far, it seems that it's going to be an uphill battle, right? Google has a lot of the legal precedent on their side. Is Google a monopoly? Yes. Um, but have they gotten there through unjust anti-competitive means? Probably not. You know, Google is a good product and people have chosen to use it. And so under current antitrust law, you know, you can't penalize a company for just providing the best experience and, and allowing people to flock to it, uh, which is different from, say, like, you know, the people compared a lot to the, the suit that DOJ brought against Microsoft, where there were anti-competitive practices to point to, right? Like the, the bundling mm -hmm. with, um, uh, you know, new, new computers that were sold, et cetera to try and make Internet Explorer the default operating system, Microsoft Office the, the default, um, or excuse me, Internet Browser and then Office the, the operating system. So I think, I think Google doesn't seem worried about the lawsuit, but what, what is likely to happen is it's going to command a lot of resources, PR, internal policy, compliance, et cetera, to, to just um, combat this. And then ultimately, Congress is going to be considering other uh, changes to legislation that could impact not only Google, but certainly Amazon, Facebook, uh, other key players as well. So interesting to keep an eye on. Um, what do you predict? What, you know, if you were making predictions for the future of the media space, what would they be? Um, I think that Cocomelon is going to become the most known brand in the world, if it's not already, honestly. And I mean, we sit here with, I think 190 million unique people watch our channel every 30 days. Uh, people are spending on average four or five minutes a day for content, I'm sorry, per session, I shouldn't say per day. Um, we are, like I said, top performer on Netflix, top performer on YouTube, one of the fastest selling toys. Uh, and we're only at three minute content right now. Um, the kids space is an unbelievably interesting space right now. Uh, there's so much opportunity to create uh, strong quality content that parents want their kids to be watching and consuming and, and, and thinking about. Um, and I think all of these kids brands and these frictionless environments and these frictionless viewership environments like YouTube. Um, and then, you know, honestly, more and more as Disney becomes a little bit more frictionless as well and people adopt Disney Plus. Netflix says Netflix uh, more and more goes into kids content, which I think it probably will. And HBO Max will need it as a family offering. Uh, you know, I don't think I'm, you know, 
breaking any news saying that kids content is going to be wildly important uh, in the space. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think we're going to find that the brands, you know, the, the next meaningful livable brands uh, were born from YouTube and less and less YouTube as a scary place. I think YouTube's done a really good job of kind of reinventing itself and repositioning itself as a more trustworthy environment. Uh, and I'm just excited to see where we go with that. Um, and keep an eye out for Moonbug, man. That's those right. Guys are, those guys, we guys, those guys, yep. uh, got some really great, interesting brands between Blippi and Little Baby Bomb and, and, and Coco Melon. I don't know that any company is reaching more uh, toddler through six to seven-year-olds uh, just with those three core brands alone. And then you add a lot on top of that. And by the way, it's all very, very brand safe, family friendly, good quality stuff. Um, and so my prediction for this, this environment in general is just, look, we always said that digital was going to break down the doors of traditional media. That obviously has happened in a really fast, interesting way uh, with the cable bundle and all of that. Um, but it hasn't so much happened with the other areas of monetization, uh, like live tours, like merchandise, like retail and all of that. And that's coming quickly. Fastly happening, especially yeah. with migration to e-commerce and all of that. So uh, really just excited for that, what it means to build a full holistic 360 business uh, and, and where, where we sit in that world. And my prediction, yes, Cocomelon will become the most known brand in the world. I love it. If it's not already, which I think it kind of maybe is, depending on how you look at it. Like, yeah. So I moderated a panel at VidCon London earlier this year, pre-COVID, before you know, lockdown, there couldn't be any more live events at VidCon and whatnot. But um, was privileged to have Ditta, the chief brand officer for Moonbug, yeah. join us in that discussion, and and very excited to hear about you know your Moonbug's international expansion plans and all of the exciting content that your the team is working on. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Moonbug, big uh, big advocate of what you're doing, and so thanks for sharing. Um, she's also on my, I left her off my love fest list, but she's also, Dita, you're on my love fest list as well. There you're we go. Fantastic. We're in there. She's fantastic. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, um, Patrick, a lot of entrepreneurs listen to the podcast. And so one question I love to ask everyone who comes on the show is if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, you know, with everything, you know, all your experience and observing the white spaces that may be out there, what would you do? Uh, I think it's about, you always start with audience first uh, and figuring out who you want your audience to be, who you think your audience is. Now, look, it can evolve over time as you start to create content and find out that the content that you love is, okay, wait a minute, I'm now split on this. The content matters. You have to be passionate about what you're making and truly, truly believe in what you're making because the reality is you shouldn't start a company and you listen to every single podcast, whether it's How I Built This, whether it's James's podcast, whether it's anything in the world, and every single entrepreneur will always say the same thing, which is, if I knew now what I knew then, I never would have done it. So you have to have a willful ignorance, but yeah. even beyond a willful ignorance, you have to have this crazy passion that just pushes you forward and propels you forward that you have to do it, that if you do not do it, it is so core to your being that you cease to exist if you do not do this, if you do not push this forward. And so in a digital media business, which is even more difficult because it's content and everyone loves content and wants to make content because it's fun and it is fun. It's excruciating, but it's fun. But anyone that is entering this space, love, love, love what you're doing and then pay attention to your audience and engage with your audience as best you can. I would probably tell you find a niche 
Um, the, probably the most successful digital companies are ones that decided on a specific audience to program to. Uh, and a lot of them are, are James's friends, like Matt Levin at Donut Media has done a fantastic job. Yep. Uh, Chris Rudy running Cut is doing a great job. Um, the mythical, uh, uh, mythical Entertainment guys are doing a really great job. Matt Pat at Game Theorist. Um, Rooster Teeth, again, very specific about how they went about uh, reaching their audience. Uh, Jacob Solomon, when he was running Wisecrack, I think he actually retired from Wisecrack. I don't know what he's doing right now. Um, but be very, very specific about what you're trying to accomplish and grind, man. It's, it's every single day, and some days are going to be great, and some days aren't. Um, and try and think of three great things that you can do each day, whether they're big things or small things, but make sure you do three things to move the football forward every single day. And then you can probably sleep at night being like, did I do enough? Maybe I didn't do enough, but I didn't do nothing. And I moved the ball forward. Uh, and that is what it is. Yep. Incredible advice. And sounds like an average night for uh, me and a lot of other entrepreneurs out there. So yeah. thank you for sharing. Yeah, Jim, you have an answer to that, right? You're actually an entrepreneur. I just oversee entrepreneurs. You're the you're the actual entrepreneur. Yeah, so I was going to point out that what you call uh, willful willful ignorance, we call blissful naivete. <laughs> right, right. Okay, there you go. So it's all that's, packaging, right? That's the investor entrepreneur difference thing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. That's fair. Yeah. No, but um, uh, Patrick, where can people find out more about you, more about Coco Melon and Moonbug? Oh, that's a good question. That's one that I'm weirdly not prepared for. Uh, I guess on the interweb. Uh, well, Moonbug has a website. Cocomelon, of course, has its YouTube channel. Um, my email is just my first and last name at moonbug.com. Uh, I'm going to be really curious to see now who listens to your podcast and follows up on that. Uh, get to send me, to yeah. send me notes. But yeah, reach out anytime. LinkedIn, I guess, exists as a way to, uh, to connect as well. Um, but look, it's a, it's a crazy world. Uh, it's an ever-evolving world. And um, there are a lot of bad ideas, but there are a lot of great ideas. And the difference between a bad idea and a great idea is not, you can't really tell until you work on it a bit. So always love talking to everyone about everything and just hearing what's going on. Um, and James, honestly, like, I just appreciate you even inviting me on the podcast at all and, and having me. It's been uh, it's been fun, I think, monologuing for like an hour. <laughs> so I apologize. I guess I'm not brief is a thing that, that, that we'll say about me. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate the invitation and appreciate you having me. That's okay. I think when I extended the invitation, I uh, understood your, your proclivity for loquaciousness. So we'll just jump. Yeah, right. Great. But, uh, Patrick, I wanted, to, I wanted to point out, I think you won the award for um, mentioning the most uh, people during the, the podcast, which just goes oh, yeah? how well you are networked, right? And also how many, how good you are at kind of referencing the other incredible work that other people do, whether it's on your team or other entrepreneurs yeah. you've been able to point to. So I love yeah, that. Well, let's, let's, let's be clear, James. They're the ones that did all the work. So, oh, yeah. I do have to say, I didn't say Parker Jones's name. And I do, I love Parker Jones, very smart guy, no context to that at all. But since you're saying I'm saying people's names, I should probably say Parker Jones as well. Uh, uh, thinking of you, buddy. Um, no, but listen, honestly, when it comes to people, this you can't do things alone. And honestly, those people are all way smarter than I am and better than I am. And I'm just honored to have gotten the chance to work with so many of them because uh, they've really shaped my outlook on things. And all I try to do is aspire to, to follow through on lessons that they've taught me over the years. Right on. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so great to dig into your history, learn a little bit more about, you know, the inside baseball of the churning group and full screen and, you know, now Cocomel and Moonbug. And it's also just so fun to, 
to examine the paradigm shifts and the strategic changes in the business over the years. And you're someone who's thought a lot about that. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.